I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we have a quick golf architecture mailbag with Andy Johnson, followed by a discussion with the superintendent on how to do low-cost renovations at municipal golf courses. The superintendent's name is Will Benson, and he works at Laurelwood Golf Course, which is a municipal nine-hole course in Eugene, Oregon. Now, in addition to maintaining the turf at Laurelwood, Will actually holds the contract with the city and helps to manage the course. So he has a very direct stake in the health and success of the facility. And over the years, he's made some significant improvements to the golf course, including building new greens and rerouting a few holes. In the process, he's become kind of an expert on how to carry out very efficient, very cheap renovations at municipal golf courses. And that's a big question at the moment, right? It's how can local courses make improvements when the margins are so tight? I think Laurelwood Golf Course is a good answer to that question. Not the only answer, but a good one. All right. So that's coming up in the back half of the episode. First though, Andy and I are going to field a few golf architecture themed mailbag questions. So right after this break, you'll hear from me and Andy Johnson. This episode of the Fried Egg Golf Podcast is brought to you by Toro. Up and down, ham and egg, to the list of great golf pairings, we can now add the Toro Workman MDX and electrification. For more than two decades, the Workman MDX has been the superintendent's trusty sidekick, a rugged utility vehicle for whatever the job. And now, it's the same. Except the Workman MDX Lithium is powered by Toro's proprietary hypercell lithium-ion batteries. Meaning, the charger's on board, ready to be connected to any standard 120-volt power outlet. Less time checking batteries and more time getting stuff done, with the same power and durability. That's another great golf pairing. A win-win. Visit toro.com golf and reach out to your local Toro distributor for more information. All right, Andy. We're doing part two of the golf architecture mailbag. We had some leftover questions from our last episode on Friday. You ready to get into it? Yeah, absolutely. Ready to go. All right. I got a few questions queued up here and and we'll just knock a few of them out. We're not going to get to all of them. I think we had something like 65 questions in response to your call for questions. So not possible to cover all of them. But I'll pick out a few of them that I think we can dig into a little bit. The first one that I'd like to address, and I'm not sure it's a question we can necessarily answer with much authority, but it's from Antifaldo or Antifa Oldo. Um, His question is, is Marco Simone, scare quotes, good? Now, have you looked much at Marco Simone? Have you looked at the videos that have come out covering the golf course? Do you have a sense of whether this course is going to be any good? 
Um, I've watched a, I've watched a little bit. I mean, the good. I think the good news for golf fans is that for uh, a Ryder Cup, a Presidents Cup, the least important aspect of of the competition is maybe. I mean, not least important. The go- of all competitions, golf course is like you know the least important comparatively to like a major championship or or such. I'm not saying like if you play a great if you play this event at a great golf course, it, the event's going to be exponentially better. It's not like the golf course doesn't matter, but team match play can carry an event because it's really about the matches, the personalities in the matches, and different things. Um, that said, with Marco Simone, I don't think it's going to be very good. It's in Italy, like it, there's not a lot of golf fans there. It's, you know, it's not a shot at Italy. Are you saying Italian golf architecture has not had a renaissance? This is, uh, this is not the place to go. I'm saying it's in Italy. So like the, the other things, there's no golf fans. It's like France, right? Like people don't care about golf in France. They don't care about golf in Italy. And frankly, it's not, you know, from what I've seen, I haven't seen it in person. It's not a very inspiring golf design, but again, you know, this is about the team match play format. And, uh, you know, I think I think like a great example of how a golf course matters would be the Walker Cup. You know, if if the Walker Cup was played at the old course or Marco Simone, what would generate more interest? You know? Yeah. The, the Ryder Cup is sort of coasting, maybe not coasting, but relying on its reputation. And of all events, the Ryder Cup can do that. It doesn't have to go to any kind of golf course that we've heard of or that we find historically or architecturally significant because it's the Ryder Cup. And I think that's the main point here. Now, I have looked at a few of the videos of Marco Simone that have come out. I I watched the match between Solly and DJ that they put out on the No Laying Up channel and and those those guys i mean they're good players and uh and they got murdered by this course and my impression not having been on site my impression is that it has some of the kind of trendy aspects of modern golf course design you have these kind of wild undulating greens but to me it didn't look like there was necessarily any rhyme or reason <laughs> to the undulations in these greens. Like they didn't really have a clear strategic purpose that related back to the whole. They are just sort of wild. And that's one thing that I've seen in a good amount of mediocre modern golf architecture that I'm not a big fan of. Now, there's a lot of land movement on this site. I don't know if it's a good piece of land or a bad piece of land. I'd really have to be on site. It seems like that's going to be a big factor in the Ryder Cup because of the drama of the topography. There are going to be a lot of obscured sight lines, a lot of blind drives, and especially a lot of blind approaches where you can't see the surface of the green because the green is way up above you and you can't see it. Now, something that confuses me about the course and its setup, and you and Joseph sort of addressed this in a podcast that you did a couple of weeks ago, but Looking at the makeup of the teams, looking at the distribution of players who are very powerful without necessarily being accurate on an elite level, I don't really understand why so many 
fairways, why the European team, which is, of course, setting up the course, the European tour, why so many fairways bottleneck at kind of the 320 mark? This would make sense if this were more of a traditional comparison between the teams or, or contrast between the teams where the Americans have all the the big hitters who maybe spray it a little bit, but the Europeans have a lot of those players too. And so why would it necessarily be advantageous to the European side to have so many of these fairways kind of come in at that 320 mark, which I think is going to force driver out of the hands of a lot of players at this course. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I would say I would, uh, you know, I think a lot of the European selections with especially Ludwig, uh, and, uh, Oigard center around like, Hey, distance is going to be huge advantage with the short par fours here. You know, there's going to be three or four short par fours that are potentially drivable. So I think that also, you know, lends itself to a long hitter. Um, but, with the bottleneck, I think accuracy is going to be really important, right? Yeah, like yeah, I think, it like is. I think it's it's not about just being long; it's to be about being long and straight, right? If if you can take advantage sometimes, um, so I think that's that's the thing. I think the uh, the Europeans generally, like if you look at the Europeans, they're longer hitters, like Rom and and Rory, and uh, when Ludwig. they're. Yeah, when they're going, those are very accurate long hitters. Um, yeah, that's true. And, and I think then, Ludwig is probably pretty accurate too. Some of the the longer players on the European side are notably accurate relative to their Well, length. and then, yes, go down the list, keep going. You got Fleetwood, very accurate player. Matty Fitz, mm -hmm. when he's cooking, is very accurate player. Tyrrell Hatton, very he's accurate a great player. Ball yeah. yeah, so you have a, you have a lot of um, players that, accuracy is a, is a facet and just comparatively and obviously this is we aren't talking about every player but like you know you Scotty Scheffler is obviously very accurate but then you get into the Jordan Spieth the Justin Thomas type players for the U.S. team and those aren't you know necessarily as accurate of players um, obviously we haven't gone player by player and we aren't going to go player by player but I think the one of the residing traits with with the European team is that if you probably put together a total driving stat, and I have not done this research, I didn't expect to be talking about this for a uh, architecture mailbag. But if you put together a total driving stat, I think that they would probably have a a pretty good advantage there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, one more note about Marco Simone. You mentioned the drivable par fours; those to me look like pretty neat holes overall relative to the rest of the course. And I would also keep an eye out for the finish at Marco Simone. Um, the last couple of holes are pretty fun. You know, there's a drivable par four in the mix. There's a, a very penal par three 17th hole where there's real stakes as to whether you hit the green and then the finisher is a risk reward, you know, water featurey uh, par. I mean, it's a little bit like Le Golf Nasty now. You see, you see a bit of a formula for these kind of European tour led uh, designs that host these big events. 
Um, I think that there's uh, there's certain moves that they have, and some of these moves work pretty well. So uh, as far as the architecture is concerned, a mixed bag at Marco Simone. Overall, it's not a golf course that I would necessarily enjoy playing more than more than many others. So um, yeah, moving and on quick to, note about yeah, the uh, America team, like you know Patrick Cantlay and and Morikawa and Xander would all all skew as like really good drivers the golf ball if you if you blend accuracy with with distance right so yeah, absolutely yeah yeah it it might be kind of a wash in terms of, I, i'm not i'm not sure how much of a uh well hovland we'll, we'll uh, europeans have a hovland too that's true so. yeah yeah it's yeah when you have rom rory and hovland and some of those other guys fleetwood yeah, I, mean, I mean fleetwood's a gr- very a accurate driver. player yeah. yeah 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 i mean his iron play is really the the leading characteristic anyway we'll we'll have We'll have plenty of time to discuss the differences between the American and European teams in the run-up to the Ryder Cup, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks. But a more uh, pure architecture question that I have for you, Andy. I really like this question. It's a bit of a thinker. What's the best fairway in golf? Not green surrounds, not bunkering, not a vista, just fairway shapes, ground movements, and contour. Uh, the The question asker uh, sees this as a very underestimated part of great architecture and the question asker's name is rob keys so uh do you have any thoughts about this off the top of your yeah head? i love this question i had a couple uh ideas in my head i think one that i immediately always go to is the 14th hole at pasta tiempo where it has like basically the extension of the barrancas uh, that runs through the fairway on a diagonal it's just like I think, and then the other thing that I think about, I thought about the 16th fairway at at St. Andrews, um, which has like these just great little rumples. I mean, you could pick like five fairways from St. Andrews and and use that. Um, Another one, the joint fairway, uh, what should be a joint fairway of second and 17th hole at North Berwick. There's just a lot of irregularity. I think like the thing that, that to me comes out when you think about this is that you have like irregular movement choppiness um you know and a lot of times the contours they aren't massive contours they're about 10 feet or smaller is what really like resonates with me i like the little stuff um kind of the wavy contours is what really gets me the bigger stuff and i think this could be like a mar- modern agronomy thing like when you get bigger movement, you're either on top or you're down, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that could be just where the cut of fairways are. You don't end up on down slopes. So when you get this smaller stuff, like the the four to five foot stuff, like if you're thinking about the 16th at, at St. Andrews, when it's not cut super low, right? You can end up with lots of like side hill, downhill, different lies that, that kind of hang. And, it, you know... That's what I love to see. Um, did you have thoughts on this? I, a, a few came to mind. You know, for one thing, I think that a lot of links holes would be candidates for this question. You know, the 13th hole at Prestwick. This is not a hole that I've played myself. I've just looked at it. Wonderful, pure linksy undulation on the small scale that you're talking about. Um, that's just a beautiful type of fairway with a, a wonderful sense of randomness and complexity, you just can't can't beat it for golf. But 
a couple more dramatic examples that did come to mind for me were one, the eighth fairway at Prairie Dunes. The eighth fairway at Prairie Dunes has these huge waves in it. So that's an example of the kind of larger scale contours that, you know, a fairway can incorporate to great effect. And these, these, um, I don't know if you even want to call them contours. I mean, they're, they're, they're so big, but they have a strategic effect on the whole because they, they can either open up sight lines or obscure sight lines. And depending on your position and the, and how well you strike your drive, you can either overcome them or really be hindered by them. Then the next hole at Prairie Dunes, the yeah. ninth hole, is a wonderful example of how smaller scale waves in the land can really work. And, you know, there's one side of the fairway on that hole that has bigger ripples than the other. And that makes the slightly flatter side of the fairway a bit more preferable because you're more likely to have a level lie. And so the, the strategic And a better effect, angle. And a better and angle. A better angle you get the over green. the left, yeah. you get a way better angle. The right side shortens the hole, but especially with that wind that usually is coming right to left there too. It is like super advantageous to get over left, but it's super hard. There's a big blowout bunker on the left, and then obviously you're always dealing with the gunch there, and it's yeah. scary. It's really scary to hit the ball left there. There's out of bounds too. Um, but yeah, that, that is... I was thinking about eight and nine at Prairie Dunes. Those are, those are two amazing fairways. And I think that what you pointed out, like the difference, the big scale and the small scale, right? It shows how yeah. each can be super effective. Yeah. Yeah. Two, two of my very favorite holes in, in golf and a big reason for it is because the fairways were routed over such interesting natural contours. You know, that's a Perry Maxwell. Those are two Perry Maxwell golf holes, right? And I think Perry Maxwell was really good at letting natural land movement stay there in the middle of a fairway. At Old Town Club, which I just wrote a profile for for Club TFE, one of the great things that he does, Maxwell does, in the routing of that course is just go straight over the most interesting topography on the golf course. And he has the guts to put fairways on pretty severe slopes and make those part of the golf hole. I think if there's one thing that really uh, I can identify that I don't like as much about the architecture that came out in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. It's that fairways are flatter, are graded, or are not put over the most interesting contours on the property. In fact, sometimes the most interesting topography is going to be off the fairway. And that makes your lie in the fairway more consistently, quote unquote, fair, more driving range like if you hit it in the fairway then you're going to have a pretty easy lie but it also just makes the golf a lot less dynamic to me and so uh if there's one thing i can identify that i love about links design and golden age design it's that you know willingness to go straight over really cool topography well another willingness that comes to mind is, unable unable yeah. to do anything else yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, they didn't have any other option. They couldn't move the land. You know, Essex County Club. We just did a hole of the day on uh, social media the eighth. of of the eighth uh, of the eighth hole at Essex County Club, and and that I mean, it's just it's again huge contours, not little contours, but there's a huge high section of that fairway, a big low section of the fairway, and all you're thinking is just I can't believe Donald Ross put a fairway over this stuff. Like it's crazy. And on that hole, you're dying. 
dying to get it down on the low yeah. section. But to do that, you have to hit from a blind tee, like kind of a draw, and you're flirting without a bounce, and and you pick up twenty extra yards if you if you could get it down into the low section. And if not, you end up outright. You have a worse angle into the green. The green, the angle the green sits on, kind of like makes it a little bit more shallow. You might, if the pin's on the left, then you're bringing in out of bounds and a bunker into play on the second shot. It's a brilliant, brilliant hole. Another great big, big fairway. Um, and, and a couple, a couple big fairways that that people probably a lot of people listening have played would be the 13th of Pacific Dunes. With mm-hmm. the hogs back down the middle, if you're able to challenge the ocean, you get a huge benefit. You don't have to take on the ocean on the second shot. If you miss, the ball's going to shoot it. If you miss it into the right side of the fairway, ball's going to shoot right. Then that that ocean on your second shot into that narrow green is right in your periphery. Another great one is the fourth abandoned trails. You know, you are you've got that kind of diagonal hogs back. It's a delightful hole. And you kind of need to figure out what how far can I push it and carry that hogs back, get the benefit of rolling over. But if you if you play too safe left, you're gonna run into trouble. If you play too far too aggressively on the right, you're either gonna be blind or you could find one of those bunkers. That is a brilliant, brilliant fairway. I mean, there's so many great fairways. It's a it it's honestly it would be a great little post is to just kind of go through some of our our favorite um favorite fairway features. Yeah, I love thinking about this question. So so thank you Rob Keys for an excellent topic there. All right. Uh let's do a little bit of discussion of tees. I think this is a, a pretty interesting subject that maybe doesn't get discussed very often. I don't think we've gone we've gone in depth on it. Recently, so uh, Suzanne Woodrow asks rectangle tees or freeform question mark, and Alex Delang asks, in your opinion, what makes a great tee box? So we can kind of put these questions together and just generally discuss tee design. This is what um, everybody wants to hear. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is why it's the third question. This was not the leadoff <laughs> question. We're, we're we're getting we're getting in the weeds here, but I think this is an underrated subject. Let me frame it this way. We think a lot about how greens are tied into their surroundings, right? We're really insistent that greens need to be gracefully designed in relation to their surroundings, right? We really focus on that. I don't think we focus on that nearly as much with tees. We're kind of fine with tees just being these lame little built up things that don't really have any design to them. So I wonder if this is something that's important to you, Andy, or whether this is something that's okay to kind of disregard when you're designing a golf course. If it's just not not that important, not as important as a green, not as important as fairways or or hazards. I think these are super important. Um, as for rectangle or free farm, I think it's super site dependent, and that's a, kind of a non-answer uh, there. Definitely. But, I mean, it, yeah, a parkland course that has kind of simple land, I think that rectangle is often the way to go because freeform tees on that kind of piece of land, relatively flat, normal parkland land, they 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 look a little dinky, don't they? Freeform. Well, I, it depends too how you how you're tying them into the greens. How far away are they? Like, I think yeah. the freeforms look really cool when you can do some like 
tie into the green surrounds and in its short grass that flows into a tee like that's really great but that's not always going to be the case like maybe there's 150 yards between tees you know maybe it's a course trying to get distance like i think but overall like you know what i think that's super site dependent i think the thing that i think about a lot and you see a lot at older golf courses that were renovated in the 90s or 2000s are elevated tees tees that that are built up and what it does is you know it doesn't sound like a lot but if you give six feet and you put them up in the air six feet it really changes the sight line and it loses the connection with the ground right Mm -hmm. when you're down on the ground it change it really obscures the way you see the hole and you know you see horizon lines right so i think like one of the biggest things that i see around is like just getting the tee boxes back down on the on the ground makes such a big impact on on a golf course and like something that we've talked a lot about um i don't i think privately but like you know it creates a lot of obscured um views and obscured um blindness kind of like a little bit of like subtle blindness to a golf course and i can't think of like many great golf courses that don't have a lot of obscured obstruction of of views and and blindness like where they're where it's kind of hiding different things from from you from the tee box and when you elevate up the tees you lose that even it doesn't sound like a lot and it's like not a very sexy thing to do but almost like i and i'm not like a lot of golf courses have done tee box projects but almost every like non-renovated golf course that i visit in the last 20 years could could have a lot of good from just having the tee boxes put down on the ground right i i think that something that is easy to do in a renovation and doesn't get much put pushback is just pushing up those tees you know nobody seems to really object to that and it gets done a lot but i think probably people should object to that more tees that are at grade often are more effective when it comes to what the architecture is trying to do at so many great courses what you see and what you don't see at a given time is very intentional on the part of the architect Um, this is something that Corin crenshaw do better than just about any modern architect when you're on a Corin crenshaw course just pay attention to what you're allowed to see and what you're not allowed to see depending on your position from the tee box, from different positions than the fairway, et cetera. What can you see and what can't you see? It's always really specifically worked out at Corin Crenshaw courses. And this is something that also is so great about Augusta National. You are always being shown things or not shown things for specific reasons at that golf course. And it's one reason why it's so great and why it uses its land so well. Um, so that's, that's one thing that, you know, renovating tee boxes can unintentionally kind of mess up the sight lines that are intended by the architect. Now, something that I thought about a lot when I visited, um, old Barnwell, a new course that is under construction outside of Aiken, South Carolina, being designed by Brian Schneider and Blake Conant, who have done a lot of work for Renaissance Golf Design, Tom Doak's firm. Really interesting golf course that has a lot of forward-thinking design concepts in it. And one of the things I appreciated about what they're doing out there is that all of the tee boxes are 
as well and as cleverly tied in to the surrounding landscape as the greens are. And they're also as varied as the greens. There's not like one type of tea box out there. It's, it's always different. And the way it relates to its environment is always different and specific to the site of the tea box. Now, part of the reason that this works is that there's a lot of short grass around, right? The tea box is not a defined area of short grass. There's short grass that kind of flows into the fairways and flows into the preceding green and kind of, you know, surrounds the tea box as opposed to being one discrete area. But I did really love the shaping they were doing around the tea boxes and how each one was interesting in its own right in the way that each green is interesting in its own right. And I think that that's a good goal for really sophisticated architecture. That's kind of the next level there. When you're treating each tea box with as much care as a green, then you're really showing that you're detail-oriented as an architect and that you care about every single component of the golf course. And so I think that's something that a lot of courses can think about when they're doing restorations or renovations. How can we treat the tee boxes with as much respect as we treat uh, the greens? All right. Um, unless we have any further thoughts about tees, Brentley Romine asks a question that we hear quite a bit. And maybe we don't need an in-depth discussion of this because maybe we've addressed it in different ways before. But when you hear the phrase best course on worst piece of land, what comes to mind? Um, That's Brentley Romine of Golf Channel. I'd probably probably say the Garden City Men's Club is up mm-hmm. there. Um, it's a really awkward property. It's like an L. Um, and then also it's, it's very, very flat. Now... Um, the way it's used, it, it just it uses like the gentle uh, movement of the land so well, um, and I think a lot of it is centers around the greens. The greens out there are, are terrific; they're just wonderful greens, um, and they're they're so um, difficult to approach because you know you the the ground being so flat obscures what's going on with the ground at the green, if that makes sense. Where it's just hard to get like an idea. Okay, like when, when the movement's big and you see a, a green kind of perched on the ground, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, that green's running away. I see. Like, I, so I it's, it's kind of almost it. like depth perception or, or like yeah. in, you know, relative scale or, or it's, a, it's uh, kind know, of direction like, of the land. Yeah. It's like yeah. when like when shooters talk about shooting in like one of the big arenas at the final four where the fans are set back. Yeah. They can't right. they they lose a little depth perception. And so what happens is like you're hitting shots into greens there and your wedge runs runs out. And you're like, wait, I thought that was gonna be right next to it. And it's like, oh, this the screen runs away a little bit. Or you can't tell that it's per then the next one spins back. And you just have like all this difficulty of of really understanding what's going on because of the obscurity of it. And then obviously at that golf course, there's a lot of above ground features that really, you know, make a big impact. So with, you know, it's just some a, a mixture of like really utilizing the little movement that exists combined with some built features that make, you know, really exciting golf like mm-hmm. a, a good example i the par three on the back the green that was restored by tom doak and brian schneider that has kind of like 
the really flat part of the gr- ground. I'm, I apologize for not remembering the exact whole number, but it's a par three. And you, they have just these like kind of like elephants in the green. And it's just like, this is really brilliant built green on dead flat land. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and garden city kind of uh, leans into what it has, right. It had really subtle movement. And so that's what, the golf course, you know, it's not, it's not as big as we're used to seeing from golf courses, but it uses the subtlety that is there. And, and so that's a good example of, you know, taking what you're given, which is uh, what a lot of golf architecture can do better. Now that we can move land, we might see a site like garden city and make it less subtle, make it bigger because we think it, it should be. But, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a rarity now because, because it is, it just like let itself be itself. Um, you know, when I think of this question, I, I think of, of Pete Dye courses and how he almost always was designing courses on, on really ill-suited pieces of land and coming up with clever drainage solutions and managing to build really interesting golf. And so that's something that immediately comes to mind. And I think you'd have to put the Lido in this discussion as well. I'm not sure this is a, it can be a bad piece of land when it's seaside and when you had views of the Manhattan skyline. But certainly it was a constructed artificial golf course. And so, uh, you know, the land wasn't offering much there. All right. Let's uh, wrap this up maybe with um, one last question about courses that have great bones but are not in very good shape. So can good bones always make courses worth playing despite unplayable course conditions and where is the tipping point? That's a question from Parmesan cheese. I'd like your brief thoughts on that, Andy, you know, do, do, does good bones, you know, uh, overwhelm the, uh, uh, how poor conditions of a certain course can sometimes get. For me, yeah. I think for for different, I I don't expect everybody to have that opinion. For me, I'd I'd much rather be playing a course with great bones that's in poor shape than a course with no bones that's in great shape. Right. Okay. To me, like the obstacles that architecture presents, even when the maintenance of the golf course is not really up to par, is um is really exciting. I think like a great example of this is like probably my two favorite courses to play in Chicago that are public, you know, in the general Chicago land area. I love going down to Kankakee Elks and playing that length from a row. There's just some massive obstacles that you have to overcome um, that were built features. and, And there's just some beautiful greens that even in a reduced state, small circles are still incredible greens that you like have to hit great approach shots into to score. Uh, and Spring Valley is the same way. Spring Valley's got a little bit more natural movement, and it's the way that ground, the golf course, you know, interacts with the ground is is really great. Um, but, yeah, for me, like, I'd rather go play those courses than go play the Glen Club. Like, in the Glen Club charges $150. It's in great shape all the time. Um, but for me, I just, that's just my personal preference that, that um, there's a certain thrill that golf architecture, um, that, that really well thought out golf architecture provides um, for me um, that I, I'd rather. And the, the thing I get to do when I go to a course with great bones, that's not in great shape is I get I get to spend four hours dreaming about what it could be. 
That's that's what I was just going to say. I think you like this because you like thinking about what a course could be. And I like that as well. And so it's enjoyable in a certain way to go to a course that isn't everything it could be because you get to have a little bit of imagination time when you're there and think, man, what would I do with this hole? How would I make this better without spending a lot of money? Now, when the question asker refers to course conditions, I think that I'm not sure what Parmesan cheese means by course conditions, but I do know that often you and I think of something different when we talk about course conditions than what a lot of people think about when they think about course conditions. And, you know, no one way of viewing this is better than another. I'm just going to articulate what we often mean when we say course conditions. Often I would prioritize good tree management, good vegetation management, firm turf, things that I don't really care about, how pure and fast the greens are, how green the turf is. If you look at a course and think it's in bad shape, if it has slower greens and brownish turf, then that's certainly one way to view a golf course, but it's not something I share. It's not something I care about. So if a course is said to be in bad shape, I want to know more specifically what that means. Now, what gets in the way of my enjoyment of a golf course in terms of conditioning or presentation is too many trees in the playing corridor that affect the strategy of the hole, mowing lines that are too far in on the greens or in the fairways, and turf that is always soggy and so doesn't run out in the way that you would hope it would. Now, even if those things are present in a golf course, I would always rather see something of architectural interest. But certainly those factors can affect how the architecture plays and how much you can actually enjoy the architecture and bring it into the game that you're playing on the grounds. And so those are certainly factors that are important. I would never say that course conditions or the presentation of a golf course is unimportant to me. But of course, yes, I I always want to see good bones. I always want to see interesting architecture. And even if it's not in the best shape that it can be, then that's that's okay a lot of the times. A lot of the times it's understandable. Some courses don't have a lot of funds and and I'm good with that as long as I get to see something in the ground that spurs my imagination. So uh, I think that would be my response to that question. Now we're going to move on at this point to an interview that I did with Will Benson, but you can consider the interview with Will Benson to be an answer to this question from Andrew Shannon. Andrew asks, lay out the formula for a great muni renovation, money included if you know average numbers. Now, I'm going to talk to Will Benson, who is the superintendent and also the facility manager at Laurelwood Golf Course, which is a local municipal nine-hole golf course in Eugene, Oregon, near the University of Oregon campus. And um, what makes Will's story special is that he has managed to make ambitious, significant changes to this golf course without getting a huge amount of outside funding. He has done this stuff on the cheap. We're not talking about millions of dollars. We're not talking about anywhere approaching millions of dollars. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. We're talking about setting aside little portions of the management contract that he has with the city and, you know, 
doing things over the course of years rather than doing them all at once. And so I talk about all of that with Will Benson and how he managed to pull it off at Laurelwood Golf Course. And and the, the improvements are ongoing at Laurelwood. I would imagine he has much more to do there. But I think the story is a, a really good one and a, and a nice illustrative one about what can be done for very cheap at a nine-hole municipal golf course. All right. Thanks, Andy, for uh, doing Mailbag Redux. Talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Garrett. This episode of the Fried Egg Golf Podcast is brought to you by Toro. Moving people around comfortably and efficiently is an important job for any golf property and for other sprawling places like campuses, event spaces, and municipalities. The new Toro Vista is perfect for all of them. Available in gas or lithium-ion battery, four, six, and eight-passenger models, this powerful people mover works as hard as a truck but rides like a limousine sure to impress guests no matter the venue. Its polar white body makes customization a breeze too, so the Vista can pull double duty as a rolling billboard while getting folks from point A to point B on point. Visit toro.com golf and reach out to your local Toro distributor for more information. All right, Will Benson. We are in a unique setting for the Fried Egg Podcast. We're actually outdoors right now at Laurelwood Golf Course. And so maybe you could start off just by describing what we're looking at, where we're sitting, what the whole kind of environment around here is like so that people get a sense for the kind of sounds they're hearing and all that kind of stuff in the background. Yeah, so the area where we are now was once my spot I hated the most because this was a fence all the way behind us and there was garbage and leaves and it was never used. So then we remodeled the golf course and moved nine down the hill and opened this area up. All of a sudden we got picnic tables and, and everybody started to sit here. And so this kind of ended up what was my least favorite spot is now my most favorite spot to just hang out in the evenings and the sun is setting and kids are putting and people are putting and people are having dinner and it just... I think it kind of exemplifies the, the change of this place, how much different people use it. So we're at a picnic table. Right behind us is a parking lot, the parking lot for the golf course. Right in front of us, what do we have going on here? Well, you can see the entire golf course, which is kind of unique to this place where the clubhouse is set up above the valley that the course is in. So, I mean, you can see the butte all the way across and you can see four or five holes from here and... You just basically have a beautiful view. And directly in front of us, we have the practice green where we have uh, some people practicing putting, um, including a, a father and daughter. And I'll, I'll say this quietly because I don't want to make them uncomfortable as if they're being surveilled. But uh, it's very, very cute and, uh, and lovely. Um, so we're in Eugene, Oregon, uh, pretty near the University of Oregon, yep. kind of like, you know, next to it. Yeah, almost next to the University of Oregon. So can you just tell me about this piece of land that Laurelwood Golf Course, this uh, nine-hole golf course, occupies? Well, it used to be 18 holes, and it was the original country club in town. And they actually had trolley service up to it originally. And then it really kind of just got lost in the 60s. I think the plan was to build an 18-hole course 
on Alton Baker Park or by the old Oakway, which was 18 holes. And they gave it to the school district and was going to become a school district. And it just kind of sat here for years, uh, kind of became known as the weed to everybody because the fairways were all weeds and you couldn't find your ball. And there's arborvita trees planted in the middle of the fairway and barbed wire fence around the driving range. And the clubhouse was wrapped in netting and plexiglass because we're getting pounded by golf balls from the 9T all the time. And uh, it just kind of sat here forever till we showed up in 2007 and kind of started this whole journey we've been on here. All right, so we're definitely going to talk about that journey, and, and that's a big thing that I want to, you know, put out to listeners is the story of this golf course and how it went from what it was, the weed, laurel weed, to what it is now, which is a really nice public, affordable nine-hole golf course on a terrific piece of land. So we're going to tell that story, but um, I think I'd like to find out some more about like how you found yourself here, how you got started in the turf industry, all that kind of stuff. So what was your path into this profession? So at the time, I was just an avid golfer, and I lived three blocks from here. And uh, we ran a construction company, so we did residential, commercial construction. We did a lot of landscape construction also. And we always drove by it and we're like, you know, it's got that clubhouse. Nobody ever uses it. The hole upstairs is empty. You got nine hole course with views. Just seems like it could be fixed. And uh, so we put in a bid when it went out to bid and we won. And uh, so we kind of were planning on working here a little bit, but we're still going to run our companies. And then 2008 financial crisis hit. And construction was just basically, it just dried up. It was over. And uh, so uh, my business partner at the time, Todd Matthews, and I, we came here and uh, we met Chris Gone over at Eugene Country Club. And he came out and helped us a little bit. And Pat Cook, who was a construction superintendent, he came out. And they just kind of started to teach us the ropes a little bit. And we kind of took over on stuff. And we got a little bit more involved in it, a little bit more involved in it. And, uh, and that's just kind of how it started there. So it went from avid golfer to kind of getting into saying, you know, I might, I might kind of like to do this. Um, so then tell me about getting more and more involved with Laurelwood Golf Course and how you ended up building up the turf operation here and, and the business as a whole. So I know that's probably a, a big story and, and feel free to give as much detail as, as you want. But um, how did that all unfold? Well, originally, when we first did some improvements in 09, um, I met the guys from uh, Scratch Golf, Ari Techner and Patrick. And they came out and they actually hand dug this bunker on number four every morning before they went to work at Scratch Golf. And uh, they were telling me, they're like, you know, this piece of land is better than the country club's piece of land. At the time, I was like, I don't know, Ari, you might be a little wild here with that. And, and one second. So Scratch Golf is the, did they make the wedges and, and yeah, stuff like yeah. that? They made those like the hand ground wedges and all that stuff. Really nice stuff. And uh, so he drove me around and, you know, I didn't know architecture from anything, you know, 20 years ago until I met Ari. And then Ari took me to, uh, I guess it's Eastern Colorado where Bally Neal is. And we played golf there for like four or five days. We played with hickories and, and, uh, and that was when all of a sudden I was like, Oh, there's more to this than just, you know, tees, fairways and greens. You know, that's when I, I mean, just seeing that dope course just kind of blew me away and saying, you know, staying there and they had the nice food at night. And 
So that's when I kind of started to read about it and learn about it and bought a couple books and just kind of began to look at it differently. But when I was in construction, we always did a lot of creative stuff. I mean, I was always looked at things a little bit differently, did different types of work. I liked the old school construction, the various like architecture of the craftsman era. And then even just like taking that thought pattern to here and just looking at the land and, and seeing what needed to be moved and how you could get the, the traffic to flow better rather than be backlogs every evening on the back part of the property. And so that's when we just started like move a tee box here or add a bunker there where we had a drainage issue. And that was just the very beginnings of making the course better through architecture, not just conditions. And I want to get into the various changes you made because they are really interesting. They might be hard to, you know, uh, tell to a, you know, non-visually, but, uh, but I think the the stuff that you've done is, is really interesting. Uh, but first maybe like a little bit of history on Laurelwood golf course. Is there a, is there a significant architectural history here that, that we know about? So it was uh, Clarence Sutton was the architect and uh, I've heard various stories about different things over the years, but he designed a couple other smaller nine-hole courses, and he was rumored to have been involved with Chandler Egan in terms of like being kind of on-site construction overseeing while Chandler was traveling. And then some was even claiming that those guys were involved with the work down in the Pebble Beach area. You know, not I don't know how much design they did, but they were involved in day-to-day -day construction, and that was kind of their deal. And so I think later in his life, I think Clarence Sutton designed this 18 holes and uh, he played in the league here for years. And, uh, and then obviously Dan Hickson came here and helped us reroute seven, eight, and nine. And Dan's dad was the assistant golf pro here in the fifties and sixties. And we have the photos of Dan's parents getting married here in the hall up there. And then you know, once the Eugene Country Club kind of moved downtown and Trent Jones reversed the course, and a lot of people went to the flat courts, and this place just kind of faded away until six, seven years ago when we really started changing stuff. Became a nine-hole course, had some issues. What were some of the specific problems that the course had before you arrived here? So neglect was probably number one. Um, there was you know some attempts at drainage but i don't know if they really had like a comprehensive view of how to get the water off of the course um obviously we talked about the tee box on nine would just pummel the clubhouse so the clubhouse was just wrapped in netting um, the driving range had an eight foot chain link fence with barbed wire everywhere um, i think the number three had a bunker that was like heart shaped on it and they were just little brown bunkers like 10 foot by 12 foot um, six had one too. So there's three bunkers. Um, and you could tell that they had shrunk the greens as they mowed in and in. So they were smaller. So they're all just little circles. And, you know, they had tee boxes that are kind of pointed the wrong direction and, you know, cart paths just cutting through holes and pinching stuff. It just, I think it's just a conglomeration of two operators that I guess it was just a different era. They just weren't in, they just were maintaining it, running it as a business. I mean, the first guy supposedly just drank beer and played golf all day. And that was, you know, some of his family fun. members did maintenance. Exactly. The next guy, Irv, was an insurance agent. He tried to do some stuff. Um, 
And then I know there was some dynamics between him and the city at the time in terms of what it should be. He's trying to go back to 18 holes. Um, so he settled on, he decided he was going to try and do two hole, two greens on every hole. So hole one had two greens, two, and then hole three. And then there was no double greens after that. So then the pace of play and where people were supposed to go was so confusing because new people didn't know what green to hit to. And then they got to the next one and, you know, regulars had like hit around them to go to the other green so they could go faster. And then they got back to five, six, and seven. It would just be a clustered mess because nobody could flow through and play. They were always stuck in the evenings. And and uh, it was just kind of a mess is really what it was. <laughs> um, and then tell me about some of the main design changes that you've made here. I'm sure there's many other things that you've done as well with the, the agronomy and, and all that kind of stuff. But maybe we could just start with the architecture. You mentioned Dan Hickson earlier. He's been advising as an architect here for a few years. And just to make sure that people know who Dan is, he is a significant Pacific Northwest architect who has worked a lot of different places. His best known designs are probably Wine Valley in Walla Walla, Washington, Sylvie's Valley Ranch in Eastern Oregon, Bandon Crossings, which is the local public course in Bandon, Oregon. Um, and then he has Bar Run, which I just visited down in Roseburg, which is about an hour, a little more or so south of Eugene. Um, and so he has done a lot of work in the Pacific Northwest. He is sort of like the Chandler Egan of the modern era, and he does very good work. Um, and something else that he does is he, you know, uh, he, he consults at courses like this and at uh, Rose City, which is a municipal course in Portland. So that's a little bit of background on Dan for when he enters the picture of this story. But what were some of the architecture changes that you made here and, and why did you make them? So the biggest one was obviously rerouting seven, eight and nine. And then on six, we put the creek back above ground because in the 1970 they plumbed all the creeks underground on the course so whenever it rains rather than the water going into the creeks and leaving it all just sits on top and anything that flows into the property goes into pipe and leaves so the creek was the first really big change that's what we did number one and i'd been calling dan trying to get him to come here and then i was just struggling with how to reroute seven eight and nine and uh i knew that i needed to get nine down the hill so that this upper area could be developed into multi-use. And I was really struggling because where were we gonna put these T's on what was gonna be number eight? I just it, was just, it was just gonna be really difficult to get it to work that way. And one quick detail, nine used to be a par three yep. playing up the hill. So if you can imagine, the clubhouse sits on a hill above the golf course. Nine played from the bottom of yeah. the hill up to the top to a green that was essentially right next to the clubhouse. Yes. And so, as you can imagine, the clubhouse was getting beaned all day long by golf balls. And the cars in the parking lot. And the cars in the parking lot. And so, safety problems. And then also, uh, you know, the, this lovely practice green that we're looking at right now uh, wouldn't be able to exist because obviously the ninth green was occupying that spot on the property. So your goal was essentially to eliminate the ninth hole, yeah. the par three ninth hole and do some sort of rerouting farther back in the course in order to get to nine holes and make what used to be the eighth hole 
this this uh, you know longer hole playing up to where the ninth tee used to be, yep. uh, make that the last hole on the course. So, uh, and you're getting into to how how you're going to make that happen. You you had to relocate the ninth tee or, or you know find some new places for all these different areas on the course. So tell me about that. Yeah. So hole number seven was a uh, it's a neat hole, but over the years the trees grew so much that from the tee box you could not see where you're supposed to hit the ball. So I knew there was some old tees in the woods from when it was 18 holes. And I'd always gone back there and looked and I always thought, well, that's where we got to go from these tees to there. And that also increased the travel time from six green to seven tee, which allowed the flow to go better. Cause in the old spot, people thought they could drive the green. So they would be waiting to drive the green. And then the people leaving the seven green would actually be walking back into play where they slice it. So I knew I had to get over there. So then it was just the old, you know, adage of like, how do you get out of the corner and create two holes to make this thing flow? And that's when I kind of was just standing there one day on what used to be the old 10 green, which was be this first double green. And then I looked out through the trees and there was the old waste area where everybody threw all their garbage at Laurelwood for 40, 50 years. And I was like, well, this is a par three right here. If we could just get rid of a couple of these trees. And then we turn nine into this par five that kind of has a, a blind shot, um, which I didn't think was that bad because I grew up in New England. We had lots of blind shots when we played golf. And then the, the ninth hole that we're moving down the hill, that par three was completely blind too. I mean, it was 150 to 210 yards uphill. You can never see your ball and there wasn't much of a hole. So then... I brought Dan out to show him my idea and uh, he was really worried about the guy's house on nine. And I was like, well, we'll put a net here and we'll do trees. And, and uh, so it ended up working out. We had to remove some poplars so we could move over a little bit. And uh, I mean, obviously I agree with Dan's idea that we should just reroute the whole nine and rebuild it and be fantastic. But it just wasn't in our budget or time frame to do that. So we kind of made the best of the situation. I think, I mean, Obviously, I'd change one or two things for sure in that green complex on nine now. But overall, everybody's really happy with it and play's gone way up since we've done it. How did you get connected with Dan Hickson and what did you observe of the way he worked out here? So I'm not sure how I got his number, um, but obviously I'd been around him. Uh, he, I think he went to college with my friend Mark Keating, who's the pro up at OGA. And so they knew each other. I might have even gotten his number through Mark. And uh, so I just called Dan a couple times because, I mean, I knew he was busy. And he eventually call, called and came out. And we just, you know, he's telling me about his parents and everything. And uh, so we went through the routing. We arranged everything. And uh, so he told me, you know, I'll be there in like 10 to 14 days. And we'll start building this ninth green. And uh, about four or five days before he came out, he sent me a text message. He says, oh, and by the way, we're going to need uh, 1,250 cubic yards of fill to build that green. <laughs> and I was like, I did not have the fill or anything. And uh, so I went into kind of this panic mode. And uh, they were rebuilding Hayward Field. So I was trying to get fill from them. But those companies were so big, they didn't care about me. And I was standing in the parking lot with my employee, Eddie. And all of a sudden, this giant dump truck and a huge excavator goes driving up the road. So I followed them to their site, and literally two blocks away, they were digging a basement for a house. And they had something like 1,500 cubic yards 
to dispose of. So they actually didn't have to drive all the way across town to get rid of everything. They just dug, dropped everything down there, stockpiled it. And uh, then we had the They're probably pretty happy about that too. Oh, they saved a ton on that one. <laughs> and uh, so I got them. They, they did the initial like kind of shape. Like they pushed it all over the excavator. They ground it in and the base was time for Dan to come in with the cat and shape it the way he wanted. Really cool. So, you know, Dan was doing a lot of the shaping out here initially, right? Correct. I just rented him a dozer and we had a little uh, sand pro and he cut everything in on eight and nines green. Uh, he did the tees on nine and eight and uh, he helped a little bit up on seven grinding the tees in with the dozer, but it wasn't quite the right machine for it. So we did that a little bit different after that. Pretty nice to have a design build architect as opposed to hiring a, a big firm with all sorts of different people. If you can have the architect out on the dozer, that, that helps you out, right? Yeah, it helps out a ton. And then I learned a ton because I sat there with them the whole time. So it was my first, I mean, I used a laser a lot in construction, but it was my first time ever like getting the degrees and learning about how you get the water around the bunkers and which way you slope the greens and kind of laying out with the posts in the middle of the fairway and looking back and building off that. So it opened up a whole new world to me. I mean, I learned tons from Dan on that first run. And I would imagine you applied some of these lessons to what you've done recently. There's a rebuilt green out here. So maybe you could describe that to me. Yeah. So when it came time to do number three, Dan was super busy but he drew me a sketch for it. So that was the first green I ever built by myself. So it was me, Parrish, and uh, Doug the excavator. And then uh, Dan came in one afternoon right at the end, and he just did a little finish shaping with my sand pro just to just be like, okay, you guys are good to lay the sod down. And uh, so then we did number seven. Parrish and I did number seven ourselves. Um, and that one was kind of, Dan was a little bit head scratch. Like he wasn't sure about the idea, but it was just, Sometimes you just, you only have set amount of space and you just use it the best you can. It may or may not be perfect, but it solved a lot of our problems. And, uh, and then the following year, uh, I redid number six. I didn't redo all of it, but we did all new drainage, all new bunkers. We lifted up the front like 18 inches because it used to have like a 7% slope on the front quarter. So if you put it anywhere near there, it was gone. And then uh, four, I think is kind of the culmination of all of it. I redid four. Dan came out and helped me figure out that it was going to be two tiers no matter what. And then that's the first one I designed the contours, did everything myself. And uh, so that one came out great. Almost killed me, but it came out great. <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've, got a, uh, we've got a Dan Hickson out influence out here and a Will Benson influence yeah. as well architecturally. So um, there's definitely a, you know, a, a number of different ideas going on out on this course uh, a great piece of land and so definitely some interesting stuff has come out of this process i'm sure a lot of people are interested in how you were able to pull this off how this was able to happen at a course that doesn't have the enormous resources of a well-to-do private club right because that's yep most of the work that we hear about most of the really interesting architectural work happens at places that have a ton of money to do what they want to do um here you have managed to do it at a local public nine hole course and so maybe you could just start by telling me about the ownership structure here how how 
do you work that out? How does everything work in terms of operating the course? So there's two of us that basically run it. Um, there's Nick Sams, who's been a restaurateur his whole life. And he's basically like the CFO. And uh, he's great in that realm. He's just very good with money. Uh, he's very good with employees. He's very good with people. And the restaurant business is not an easy one to be in. The margins are slim. And uh, so to bring someone with that experience to come into the golf realm was beneficial because it freed me up to just kind of get to work. It wasn't where I always had to watch all the finances and do what I could do and deal with the employees. So he just took 50% of the crap off of my plate. It was just gone and you were free. And then we had uh, the city of Eugene, uh, when they negotiated the last contract with us, we had an attorney, Larry, and uh, they worked together for a couple of weeks. And so we had back funds that were not used I think like $60,000 that were you know, put into account that we did not use. And then the city brought another chunk of money to the table. And so then basically it was just up to us to you know, work with Dan, do the improvements. The city agreed upon the improvements. And uh, that's when we did the six, seven, eight, nine improvements. And then once that funding was gone, basically there's just a small chunk every year for improvements. And so that's where we've been redoing the irrigation on the greens. And uh, some of the greens, like, too, is such a good complex. You know, we did the irrigation, but there was no reason to recontour it. It's just, it's, it's nice. But then, like, three, that's where we did new irrigation. We recontoured it in one year. So that one year, I mean, I was, I was able to rebuild number three and number seven with all new irrigation with that one-year funding. So doing it all in-house. And uh, we have an excavator guy that's great, you know, so he can great at shaping, put, putting the irrigation in, the employees do it. So it's just a, it's an in-house effort. Now, obviously there have been challenges over the past few years. You came to this business after the recession. And, and so that was one big earthquake in the economy. And then another one happened in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I, I remember meeting you around that time and hearing about some of the improvements you were making. And it was sort of a, a punch in the gut. But things have gone well for the golf industry after COVID. So how did Laurelwood, first of all, deal with, with, with that initial shock of COVID and then come out of it afterwards? Yeah. So that was a wild time, huh? <laughs> I hadn't thought about it in a little while. So we, uh, we really were getting more rounds once we did the improvements. Like I definitely was an uptick. And then with the beginning of the outdoor dining, there was definitely like an uptick and stuff. And then COVID hit and, uh, we closed for probably three weeks and, uh, our maintenance regime is different than a lot of courses. So we don't pull a lot of cores or that stuff, but we were close, so Parrish and I were just the only two here. So we just cored everything because <laughs> there's nobody around. We're like, now's the time to do it, and then hopefully we'll open up. And uh, and then Nick Sam's wife, Sadie Sam, she came and joined us. And uh, and then we're we're getting ready to open back up, and we're trying to find employees, and there wasn't really a lot of employees. And uh, and then this young gal from Thurston High School, her senior year was canceled. So she came to work with us. And so we just kind of opened up and it, it just started the process of, I think, I think restaurants were open 
for a little while after that. I can't quite remember how it all went down. But so the course has stayed open after that three weeks ever since. And it was crazy. I mean, we never seen anything like it. And uh, we just got overrun for a while there. Then all of a sudden they were almost killing everything because there was no pin positions on some of the greens because they're so sloped. And, and that started also to lead me into redoing some stuff of the greens to be able to withstand the amount of play that we're suddenly having. And even coming out of COVID, we're still increasing rounds to this day, finding new people around here. Uh, that's that's really good to hear. Yeah, one of, one of the you know great things that's happened is that the initial surge in interest in golf turned out to be more sustainable than I personally thought it would be. I thought it was going to be one year of kind of like, this is all we can do. So we might as well do this, but there has been a, a you know, it, it's not, there's been a bit of a leveling off, but, but things have definitely stayed at a, a higher level than they were before COVID. How do you account for that? Do you think there's a different perception of golf that has taken hold in the post COVID times here? Yeah, I do. I do think, and I wonder a little bit, is it just golf? You know, is it hiking too? But it feels like like people think about life a little bit differently than they did before. I don't know. I can't necessarily put my finger on it, but I see more people kind of hanging out together. I see more people, you know, wanting to be outside, kind of living a little bit. I don't, uh, it's odd. I just, there's more people more diversity in people like here and it couldn't have just been like, well, I just found golf again and it's great. There's just some different switch in certain populations of people where they felt better about being out here. Yeah. And, and I, I hope it continues, but yeah, it's almost like we were reminded of, of some of the things that were specific about golf, you know, being, being outdoors and, relaxing and tending to yourself a little bit. Yep. Some of those things seem to have become more important and golf seems to have become a more important purveyor yeah. <laughs> of, of those kinds of services, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's just something about it. I mean, they just, you know, not kind of watching TV all the time, being outside. And then there's the comfort of you being isolated a little bit. You know, you're not, I mean, we went to, a uh, Chelsea Handler like comedy show at the Holt Center and you're just looking around at everybody around you everybody one person coughs and the whole place looks you know but but here outside like you just don't have that there's no there's like freedom I mean I still go to the grocery store and I still still, still see people you know looking at you out of the corner of their eye worried someone's got a mask and it just feels like here like that worry's not there yeah yeah it's it it, it, it frees you up from thinking about it because we were all sort of collectively traumatized in a way during that time. And there's still a lingering thing about indoor spaces where you're kind of like, oh, I don't know. It's still there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, so, you know, w one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately and, and with the, the national links trust symposium coming up in Washington, DC, that is kind of on this theme, I've been thinking about it more, but I, you know, I like learning about different ways that 
municipal and local golf courses can manage to get a piece of the pie when it comes to money in golf. Because there's a lot of money flowing into golf right now, more than there was before. And predictably, quite a bit of it tends to be diverted to the usual places, to high dollar resort courses, to private courses. And there's, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that or that that offends me. I just want local courses to get a little bit of that. But it seems like operators really have to fight for that and to be savvy about it. So, I mean, if you were to go into advice mode for how different golf course operators or even superintendents could help fund improvement projects like the ones that you've done over the past several years, what kind of advice would you give around that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many different approaches to it. I mean, you have like Winter Park down in Florida where the town themselves decided we're going to have a great nine hole golf course. And you walk that thing and all the money is on those greens complexes. So they decided that's what they wanted. And, uh, and there's some creative people involved there. Like when I went down there and I was looking around, I was like, look at these clever shirts, look at these clever signs. You could tell that there's some very thoughtful people involved in that. And, uh, I do think municipal golf courses in general are leery of creative people and people with ideas and people want to change some things. And I'm not saying like, you know, I'm not saying that change is the most important thing in the world, but you do have to change in order to become different, to offer stuff that people want. And, uh, I mean, I have some, their caddies down at Bandon and I, I think it is there Cato Bluffs in Michigan. Arcadia Bluffs. Yeah. Arcadia Bluffs. Yep. So they, I, I, they didn't even call me or anything. They just sent me a DM afterwards and they said, Hey, we'd heard about you on the Twitter or whatever. And we came out and played and we, we caddy and we play at Bandon and we caddy play back there. And I, we love what you're doing there. Just keep doing the improvements. Just a little bit better. It's great. I love it. And, uh, and so I think that's also important too. Like it, everything doesn't have to be a $5 million master plan. And everyone doesn't have to have all nine greens perfectly done that year. And we close for 19 months and month. Everything's perfect. Not a drop is out of, out of place. I mean, it's okay to be kind of a little rough as you do it. I mean, I remember one guy left a review after we did seven, eight, nine and writes this review on Google or whatever. And he's like, well, obviously I didn't have enough money to finish everything and complaining about it. I was like, yeah, we didn't. But in time we have. And so... That's the point of view that we've taken is, you know, I don't offer perfection every day, but it's a hell of a lot better than we started. There's something else about the process that you've gone through that stands out to me. And that is that Dan at the beginning was out on the dozer designing and shaping the greens himself. And then as that went on, he handed off more and more responsibility to you. And so now the changes can be more and more in-house. And that seems kind of rare to me. It's pretty rare that an architect would be like, oh, you don't really need me. Usually architects want to say, yes, you do need me. Yeah. Maybe that started to change because architects are so busy. I know yeah. Dan is very busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that could be part of it. But 
you have learned to do a lot of this stuff yourself. And that is kind of like the ultimate efficiency, right? Learning how to do construction, to do design, and to be able to carry out some improvements almost on your own with help, but you are sort of the point person of it. Have you, have you felt that kind of emerging over the past couple of years? Definitely. And, uh, he got so busy. I mean, it got to the point where it was like, he'd call me like six or eight weeks after I called him. He'd be like, sorry, dude, I am just slammed. You know, what do you need? And I was like, I just, when we redid four, I was like, I just need a little bit of help shooting the grades and getting this correct. And, uh, so he came out and, uh, we were shooting on it and he's like, well, you're going to have to do two tiers. This is the way it's going to have to be. I was like, that's fine. That's fine. And then he kind of hinted. And I was like, oh God, he's going to stay another day. And help me shape this thing. So I was so tired from getting the utilities in and stockpiling the sand. And, and, you know, I have very inexperienced staff, very young staff. And, and so it's, it's a heavier burden at times on a larger project. And uh, he's like, all right, you're good to go. See you later. <laughs> and he drove off and I was like, oh, I got to design the whole thing myself here on the end. And so we just went for it. But it has been like that. He's like comfortable where I'm at. He's busy. I can call him. We talk about stuff. I see him at the shows and he comes out every once in a while. And we just look at stuff and walk the property and just get a feel for it. I think that's how a lot of the best renovations and restorations happen is just sort of piecemeal over time. The ones that happen all at once can turn out great too, but those are pretty expensive and they don't necessarily achieve a better result than the little bit at a time. Let's try this and let's see how it plays. And then we can learn something from that to apply to the next thing. And so in a way, you know, the lack of funds to just blow it all up and, and redesign the course as, as cool as I'm sure a Dan Hickson course out on this property oh, would be. Would be yeah. Um, it is, there is something to be said for not having the funds to do that and having to be a little more clever and patient in, uh, in, in the process. Um, so, you know, when you, when you think about the next several years, do you have an idea of, of kind of where you want to go next with the golf course? Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a list of of things. Obviously, um, after four, which was it was really difficult on me. End of COVID, all just it was difficult to say the least. So everyone's like, "When are you going to do number five? I was like, "I need a year or two off to do that." Um, so we're going to do a little recontouring on the number one green, and uh, we have a little bit of irrigation work to do on the other side that we may or may not do. I've talked to Dan about doing a Himalayas green over on the other side for the citizens, which I think would be fantastic use of space over there. And uh, there's some drainage work to do. There's bringing one more creek kind of above ground. There's a number of areas I'd like to add a few more bunkers. And then, I, you know, for playability, I think we're at the stage where we can take X amount of that funds and start top dressing the fairways just to try and increase playability different times of the years. And uh, so I think we're we're most of the way through a lot of the architectural changes. There's just a few more few more years of stuff to do to kind of tighten it up. 
All right. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your busy day to, to talk to me. This has been a pleasure. This is definitely the best setting for a podcast that I've ever recorded uh, one, one of these interviews in. Um, so really appreciate that. And, and good luck with the, uh, the future of this golf course here. All right. Thank you very much. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rucius. Thank you, Matt. One thing that you can do to help out Friday Golf is simply to rate and review this podcast. Apple Podcast reviews and ratings are especially meaningful, so if you're listening to us there, then give us a hand. You know, go go do it right now, actually. I'm going to give you a second. Okay, did you do it? All right, thank you so much. That's so nice of you. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you.